This is Tom O'Connell. Welcome to my podcast, Vegas Fed. In 1990, I was a former Suffolk County, New York cop and assistant district attorney who found himself in the Mojave Desert prosecuting federal cases as an assistant U.S. attorney in Las Vegas, Nevada. The first case I'm going to revisit is the kidnapping for ransom, a very substantial ransom, of Kevin Wynn, the daughter of Steve Wynn, the man who revived and reinvented Las Vegas when he opened the Mirage at the end of 1989. It is a story of desperation and greed, evil and stupidity, courage and love, and a lot of hard work in a mission to bring the perpetrators to justice. Las Vegas, the 90s, the new Vegas. The actual birthday was November 22, 1989, the day the grandiose, lavish, sparkling new mirage was unveiled to the world. The strip had been reinvented. The architect of all of it was the young, toothsome, and always tanned Steve Wynn, the naysayers said Wynn would never be able to generate the $1 million each day that would be required to keep the lights on. They were wrong. By 1993, the year of the infamous kidnapping, the Excalibur, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and Wynn's own Treasure Island would be built. Thanks to Wynn, Vegas was booming, but his world was about to come crashing down around him. On this episode of Vegas Fed, the government prepares for an anticipated defense, which will be promised in opening statements and comes out swinging with their case as trial begins. A few weeks before trial, we finally got around to interviewing Val Galley, having read her FBI report of interview, or 302. She had told the FBI or at least the FBI 302 said she told them that she remembered the driver of the car and that he was white. We knew from Kevin Wynn's description, from Anthony Watkins, and from a mountain of circumstantial evidence that it was Sherwood. Most importantly, we had his fingerprint on the airport ticket and no one else's. The discussion we had with Val Gowie in the U.S. Attorney's Office was nothing short of amazing. It was so weird as to be difficult to believe, but in our case, it was true. Meeting her was something I kept meaning to do, but had fallen toward the bottom of the lengthy to-do list consisting of tasks which I considered more important. I felt that impeachment of her could be accomplished with relative ease. I had already obtained enough information from the McCarran Airport people concerning the volume of vehicles which enter and exit the facility and the brevity of ticket transactions to cast substantial doubt on her statement that she remembered the beyond the car and its driver. And again, we had the fingerprint. There was no doubt that Sherwood was, in fact, the driver. I had a pretty good hunch that Dan Albrecht would incorporate Ms. Gowie's statement to the FBI, given on the night of the kidnapping, into whatever defense he had planned. It would turn out even better than that. He made her his star witness. Jay, Sean, Mike, and myself made Ms. Gowie comfortable in a small library down the hall from my office. She was an extremely affable, shy woman, a native of Thailand, who spoke somewhat broken English. I started this session by asking if she remembered the night of the kidnapping and being interviewed by the authorities. She responded by saying that, in fact, she had been interviewed several times by a variety of parties, including the FBI, Metro, Mirage Security, and the airport people. We engaged in some chit-chat concerning the operation of the garage, the process by which the toll booth person checks the front license plate of a customer turning in his or her ticket, or if that's not possible, observes by means of a video camera 
the back license plate, displayed on a monitor inside the booth. Preparing to impeach her at trial, we inquired how many cars might pass through the airport parking facility on a given night and asked how she and her co-workers could possibly remember one from the other. She told us that in order to pass time and inject some fun into an otherwise boring job, they took special notice of vanity plates and discussed them, trying to figure out their meanings. Hmm, maybe she remembered the Audi after all. This could be more problematic than I anticipated. Finally, I got down to the $64,000 question. I probably should have asked Ms. Gowie, if you remember, what was the race of the driver of the Beyond the Car? She was obviously going to say the guy was white. One should never assume anything. Rather than ask Ms. Gowie what race was the driver, I massaged the inquiry. Instead, I stated matter-of-factly, Ms. Gowie, you told the FBI that the driver of the Beyond the Car was a white man. Val Gowie then blew my mind. She made our collective day by answering, no, I didn't. Never said driver was a white man. Said driver was Italian. I looked over at Joseph M. Angelo Jr., my trial partner who had painstakingly researched his roots in Italy. He was a proud Italo-American who I knew would not be anxious to claim Sherwood as one of his own. I cannot contain a trace of a grin. Ms. Gowie, what does Italian mean to you, black or white? Italian is dark. Driver, very dark man. This was too good to be true. When she had described the driver as Italian, could she have actually met a black man, an African-American? I wanted to be very careful not to give this obviously truthful, unassuming witness anything even remotely resembling a hint as to what we had hoped to hear next, or as to our theory of the case. The answer to the next several questions might very well blow what we anticipated as at least part of Sherwood's defense right out of the water. This had to be handled right brought a no opportunity to defense to claim prosecutorial misconduct, a cheap shot to which more and more defense attorneys resort, particularly when desperate for any advantage in the face of overwhelming evidence. I proceeded with caution, assuming that any questions I asked, as well as the order in which I asked them, would be dissected before the jury during her testimony. First, we needed to know how much she knew or thought she knew about the case. She told us that she didn't read newspapers, but occasionally watched the news on television. She was aware that the government had charged three people with taking part in the kidnapping, and she had seen the three on the news. She had no idea which defendant we had accused of being the driver. Was the driver one of the men you saw on TV, I asked? Yes. Was it the white man? No. Which of the two black men you saw on TV was it? The big one, she said, gesturing to indicate a husky person. The one with the big eyes. I was flabbergasted. The FBI agent who wrote the 302 had apparently done some unconscious editorializing when he stated that Gowie said the driver looked white. He had disregarded Jack Webb's insistence on sticking to the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Gowie said she never told the agents that the driver they already looked white. She said he looked Italian. Now, to me, Italian means white. In fact, everybody I've ever known, including obviously the agent who authored the report, Italian means white but not to Val Gowie, an immigrant from Southeast Asia who doesn't see things in black and white. Probably trying to clarify things with a witness whose grasp of English was strained, the agent substituted her words for what he thought she meant. The agent had screwed up, and I almost screwed up, by not interviewing Gowie much earlier in the case, given the importance of the ticket bearing Sherwood's prints. No detail is ever too small to be ignored, and again, nothing should ever be assumed. Any one of a million little things can go wrong in a case. 
That's why I believe so strongly in pleas. You can't lose a plea. And when you go to trial, you never know what landmines are waiting for you. We decided not to call Gowie at trial. We had discharged our ethical duty by turning over the report of her interview to the defense. You can't lead your own witness, and given the language barrier between us, we thought it would be difficult to bring her through these unique circumstances without asking leading questions. Furthermore, given the bizarre turn of events outlined above, establishing any degree of credibility would be yet another challenge. We'd bet on Albrecht's calling her. If he did, we could lead her on cross-examination. And if he didn't, the 302 which mischaracterized his statement would not be an issue. After a full year of working relentlessly, it was finally time to try this case. We had a witness list with 70 names on it and hundreds of exhibits we'd systematically marked to be introduced into evidence. Jury selection took an entire tedious day, largely because the court was using a questionnaire which each prospective juror was required to fill out and then questioned upon. Given the defense claims that pretrial publicity would deny them a fair trial, the record needed to be clear that none of the people ultimately seated as jurors harbored any preconceived notions about the defendant's guilt or innocence. We decided that I would be the one to kick off the long-awaited proceedings the next day by making the government's opening statement. Grabbing the attention of the jurors and setting out a roadmap that would make it easier for them to follow the mass of evidence we would present was critically important. Which brings us back to the photo session. Early on, I had made the decision that the victims of this crime, the Wynn family, should not have to, and in fact would not, suffer the embarrassment and stress that would result from the public revelation of all the details of this crime, particularly what went on inside Kevin's home, unless absolutely unavoidable. In other words, unless the case went to trial. No one from the Mirage, no member of the Wynn family, nor anyone else ever expressed a concern regarding the public dissemination of the lurid photo session. I always assumed that was a demonstration of their trust in me and the system. Contrary to the expectations of many, Wynn had kept his commitment to step aside and allow me to handle this case without any interference from his impressive staff of former law enforcement officials. I've always considered this fact remarkable, considering the power he was accustomed to wielding. At Cuddy's detention hearing, and later Sherwood and Watkins, I omitted that aspect of the crime, even though it would have strengthened my position that detention without bail was appropriate. But it was plain that they would be detained, and telling the story in open court would accomplish nothing but additional headlines. The sad truth is, many prosecutors and or agents who never met a camera they didn't like would have gleefully plunged into this part of the case at the first opportunity. Instead, in all pleadings filed with the court, if reference to the photo session was necessary, I attached a motion to seal the documents from the public. Naturally, all had been disclosed to the defendants. In fact, I made it abundantly clear to defense counsel that I would be willing to sweeten the pot during plea negotiations if I could avoid a trial in which Kevin would have to testify regarding her terrifying experience, and especially the humiliating photo session. And that plan was a perverse and sick photography session in which Kevin Wynn was forced to disrobe down to her underpants and to pose with Jake Sherwood while Mr. Cuddy played director. 
Specifically, Cuddy and Sherwood had each been offered 12-year sentences in exchange for guilty pleas. I remain amazed that neither accepted my offer. All of this leads to an observation. Any prosecutor who's committed to the job for which he's being paid, that is, the conviction of the guilty, should realize that until a case is over, the media can usually have only one effect on a case, problems. Coverage of a case may generate newspaper articles suitable for framing or to send to mom and dad. Press conferences, television and radio interviews may serve as free advertising to promote a move into private practice or the political arena. The bottom line, however, is that the prosecutor betrays both his oath of office and the public trust by such self-promotion. In the early days of the case, I received telephone calls from the Today Show, People Magazine, American Journal, Dateline NBC, and other major media. Local television repeatedly requested on-camera interviews. I will frankly admit that the requests were flattering. Wouldn't it be nice for my parents on the East Coast or my local family and friends to see my smiling face discussing the biggest criminal case in Las Vegas on television? I could be a celebrity, a pundit, a star. Who knows what it all might lead to? There was only one problem. I had a case to prosecute. My duty was to convict the guilty, not further my own career. On a pragmatic level, pandering to the media was a dangerous game. It could conceivably compromise the case and diminish the chances of a conviction. You might slip and say something the defense will use against you. Just the fact of extensive coverage might, and in fact did, occasion a change of venue motion. I knew such a motion would ultimately be filed in this case. Though not dispositive of the issue, it would be nice to be able to respond, as I did, that all the talking was being done by defense counsel, primarily Cuddy's, via repeated impromptu press conferences. Conversely, the government consistently offered no comment when questioned by the press. Our hands were clean. If the cowards who committed these crimes walked because I was too busy trying to get famous than to do my job properly, I could never look in a mirror again. I made a promise to myself that I would not speak to the press unless and until the case was closed for good, that is, after the guilty had been convicted. Then, way down the road, it would be our turn to speak, and speak loudly at their sentencings. Now, however, I would no longer be able to keep private the most despicable part of the kidnapping, the photo session. So the public would hear about it from the mouth of the victim, our first witness, Kevin herself. You may remember me referencing Kevin's fear of being raped and that it was not unfounded. I'll explain why. thing you and your father are going to do is try to come and find me. So I need insurance and, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to have you, t- we're going to take some pictures of you. And he said, and we're going to have you take off your clothes and you're going to take these pictures with one of us. And we're going to cover your eyes with sunglasses so that it looks like you were cooperating in these pictures. And I started to shake because I thought, I'm going to have to take off my clothes and I'm going to be raped and that's what I thought the next thing was. So I got very scared and I, I started saying, please don't hurt me, please don't hurt me. Kevin Wynn did indeed have good reason to be afraid of being raped. In late 1986, a California woman reported that she had been violently raped in June 1981 by three men. Ray Cuddy was the leader. 
She stated that as a result of the attack, she had recently begun therapy for alcoholism and depression, and that her newly retained therapist convinced her to call the police some five years after the event. The victim stated that she was lured by a man fitting Cuddy's description at that time, driving a black Corvette, which was what Cuddy drove at the time, to the sporting house, which Cuddy managed. It was after hours, and he had a key. Without revisiting every detail, once she and Cuddy arrived, they proceeded to the men's locker room. There, Cuddy and his two cohorts tied her to a massage table and repeatedly raped and sodomized her, including using a pool cue. The bruised and battered victim immediately reported this to her family. She was able to describe the men's locker room with specificity. They took it to the Orange County Police, but to no avail. The cops stated that the incident occurred in the jurisdiction of the Newport Beach Police. Shortly thereafter, she contacted a rape crisis center. A counselor urged him to go to the Newport Beach Police, but she stated that by now she'd lost the courage to do so. However, at the urging of her counselor, in 1986, she did report the crime to the Newport Beach Police, and they took an interest. Her claims were corroborated in many ways, and so they decided to take the further step of taping a recorded phone call from the victim to Cuddy. The transcript of the conversation is painful to read. On it, Cuddy ultimately admits to his horrific acts and apologizes. He uses the classic rapist line, I thought that's what you wanted. When questioned by police, Cuddy lied. First, he told police that he recalled at around that time, a woman had called him accusing him of rape and he just hung up on her. But when confronted with the tape, he changed his story, claiming that he said what he said to his victim because he thought it might make her feel better. Among other lies, he also denied having darker hair in 1981, claiming his hair had always been gray. He was then confronted with a copy of the picture on his California driver's license, another falsehood exposed. The police then requested that a complaint be filed by the sexual abuse unit of the Orange County DA's office. Sadly, an intrepid DA declined the case, citing insufficient evidence, and that was the end of it. As the local press described it, we came out swinging, calling Kevin Wynn as our very first witness, followed by her father, Steve Wynn. Their emotional testimony had the courtroom riveted in silence. And I said, Dad, it's Kevin. I've been kidnapped. And I could tell my father was just about to say, what kind of joke is this? And I said, I repeated myself. I said, Dad, I've been kidnapped. She said, hello, Dad. Listen carefully. It's Kevin. Uh, I've been kidnapped. And what was your response? I thought it was some. Just pulled my legs some, put on. I, I said, "What? What happened next?" A man's voice came on the phone. What did he say? He said, "Listen carefully. We've got your daughter." My father said to me, "Kevin, don't worry. I'll handle this. Don't worry, honey." And I just said, "I love you, Dad." He said, "I love you too." Well, she's one of my best friends. I'm with her all the time. Well, all four of us are very close, but Kevin, because she lives here and because she shares many of the same interests that I do, is my particular close buddy. I remember that my, uh, my kneecap was shaking, and I couldn't make it stop, and my breathing was short. I kept saying, breathe deeply. 
get control of yourself. And all I could think of was Kevin. Years later, I happened to catch a TV interview with our judge, now senior federal judge Lloyd D. George, for whom the federal courthouse, located right on the Strip, is named. He was asked about all the cases he had overseen and all the years on the bench. He was asked what witnesses impressed him the most. His answer was the Wynn kidnapping case and the testimony of both Steve and Kevin Wynn. On that first day of testimony, we also called FBI agent George Lyford, the man who had broken the case wide open with his hunch about telephonic contact among the co-conspirators. As the trial progressed, we called Anthony Watkins, who repeated everything he told us in his proffer. I'd like to take the worst case example I can think of in terms of credibility of a witness. You may well hear from Anthony Watkins in this case, the co-defendant, perpetrated his crime with these two. Anthony Watkins is a kidnapper and a liar. He's a dope dealer and a liar. He's an extortionist and a liar. He's a gang member and a liar. He's a rat and a liar. We would not ask you to blindly accept Anthony Watkins' testimony if the only thing we asked him was what time of day it is. We're going to ask you to consider all the evidence, the testimony from each witness, and every piece of evidence, not in a vacuum, but in the context of all the other evidence that you're going to hear over the next several weeks. And I would suggest to you that Anthony Watkins' testimony could be set aside at the end of this case, could be wrapped up and thrown in the garbage, and you'll still have more than enough evidence to convict Cuddy Sherwood to the standard beyond a reasonable doubt. And while Anthony Watkins' testimony may be something that you want to hear and that you'll find helpful, it's only icing on the cake. We called Glenda McBride, who likewise gave up Jake Sherwood. We called the Sacramento Misfits and the dopey teenage girls from Baldwin, Missouri. We called Jason Cuddy. We called the agents who surveilled and arrested his father in Newport Beach and the ones who seized a bounty of evidence from his person, his car, his hotel room, and Spiro's garage. And we called Spiro himself. Likewise, we called the agents who, two months after the kidnapping, ferreted out Sherwood and Watkins in St. Louis. We entered business record after business record corroborating all the evidence regarding the frenzied spending by Cuddy, Sherwood, and Watkins. We introduced evidence of the sale of the gun, which Sherwood had used, inside Kevin's house, and the purchase thereof by Ray Cuddy. We put the money wrappers into evidence, dispositively tying Cuddy's cash to the kidnapping proceeds, and the jail tapes, Cuddy in his own voice admitting to the crime in a conversation with his son. We introduced into evidence the fingerprints putting Sherwood in Kevin's car while she was bound and blindfolded on the floor in the back seat, hidden under a pile of blankets and additional McCarran records putting Cuddy in the long-term parking lot where Steve Wynn had finally been reunited with his missing daughter after an eternity. There was a mountain of evidence, too much to discuss here. The highlights summarized should give you the gist. Once the government rested, it was the defense's turn to put on a case. Dan Ulbricht then sealed his client's fate by calling Val Gowie the McCarran Airport 
parking ticket booth operator as he had promised to do so in his opening statement. By implication, he sealed Ray Cuddy's as well. Clearly, the defendant in the criminal trial has the most to lose. When he elects to reject a plea bargain and roll the dice before a jury, he is taking the chance that his ultimate sentence will be considerably greater than the bird in the hand he'd been offered. I've heard lawyers on both sides, unhappy with the defendant's choice to buck the odds and take a case to trial, make the comment, well, when it's over, one way or the other, I get to go home. This case would teach me firsthand that trying high-profile cases can be a blood sport. While the lawyer's personal liberty may not be at stake, careers are. As the prosecutor, if you win a big case, your reputation is enhanced, even though you can't make a car payment, cover the mortgage, or help the kids with college with a reputation. There's not going to be something extra in your paycheck as a result of a guilty verdict. Moreover, as a reporter once sarcastically told me, we, the prosecutors, are supposed to win. Consequently, since defendants are supposed to be convicted, there is a greater loss of face, if you will, when a case is lost by a prosecutor. Conversely, because he is supposed to lose, there is an even greater boon to the career of the victorious defense lawyer. And acquittals can translate into windfalls in the form of potentially higher future fees and notoriety. Not surprisingly, the bigger the case, the higher the stakes. I don't know if a prosecutor's desire for justice and success is greater than a defense attorney's desire for money and success but the two clearly did not share the same motivations. We had no way of knowing, but Albrecht was preparing to go to lengths beyond anything we'd anticipated. Not only would he put tremendous weight on the Gowie statement, quote-unquote, he would pretty much slander us for accusing the wrong man. His opening statement revealed the defense strategy based almost entirely on Gowie. The agent wrote white in the report, so it was Spiro, not Sherwood. And then it went over the line. We'd ignored all the evidence because we wanted it to be Sherwood. As I sat there listening and getting pretty angry, Albrecht's demonstrated to me that even a respected colleague will pull out all the stops and make things personal, give the chance to win a big case in the national spotlight, a career case. I'll readily admit that some prosecutors are just as guilty. Throughout his opening, he would accuse me of not bothering to investigate the case objectively of basically shirking my responsibility, of disregarding Spiro Kemble as a suspect. In fact, nothing even further from the truth, as Kemble would be the first to tell you. We hounded him, and he was interviewed at least a dozen times. And amazingly, Dan Albrecht would base this charge, and virtually his entire case, on an FBI report of interview with a witness he had never even spoken to. His first conversation with Ms. Gowie would be when he called her to the witness stand during trial. Addressing the portion of Kevin's ordeal when her Audi entered the airport parking facility, went up, and then down the spiraling ramp, and her hearing Val Gowie say no charge, Albrecht spoke to the juries. With no eyes in total darkness laying in the black in the back seat, she was soon lost. She lost her direction where they were going, and she became frightened. But at one point, they hit a familiar place. Because the car spiraled and spiraled, and spiral. And Kevin Wynn told detectives, it was then that I knew where I was. 
I had been at the McCarran International Airport. I had been in that spiral that leads to the short-term parking. That belief was reaffirmed when a faint light shone through the cotton. And she heard the words, no charge, sir. Words from a pair of eyes. Words from a pair of eyes of an individual in a ticket booth. Lit so brightly that it shone through her cotton-covered eyes. Lit so brightly that it lit up the individual who was driving Kevin as she lay in the back seat covered by a blanket. Val Gowie were those eyes. She's a ticket taker and a change person at the booth outside the airport. Val Gawi took the ticket from that man that night. And Val Gawi talked to investigators afterwards. And she said, you know what? I remember that car. I remember that car because it wasn't very busy that time of night. We didn't have the usual onslaught of cars. It wasn't busy. And there was a distinctive personalized license plate on that car. And I remember the car. And I remember what I saw. The eyes for Kevin Wynn saw a white man. The eyes for Kevin Wynn saw a white man driving that car, approximately 30 years old. And the man had short, dark hair. Kevin Wynn's darkness ended shortly thereafter, when her father and her men found her in the oversized parking lot of the backseat of her car, still covered by the blanket. The government's darkness regarding who that tall man was continues here today because Jacob Sherwood is on trial for being the white man who was approximately 30 years old with short, dark hair that Val Gawi saw in that car that night. The government's darkness continues because like bloodhounds who follow the wrong trail, they were oblivious to the other evidence. They did not leave their blinders outside when they investigated this case. No. They investigated the case to fit their theory. They didn't investigate the case to find out who that tall man was. How does this happen? It happens in part by the very emotion for such a savage crime that Mr. O'Connell himself exudes throughout the course of his opening statement. An emotion that he hopes that he can challenge through you to a conviction in spite of other evidence. An emotion that he hopes acts as a blinder so that you only see the evidence that supports his theory. He went on to accuse us of intimidating witnesses, of telling the witnesses our theory of the case and then coercing them into adopting it. He outlined his theory that Cuddy had set up Sherwood, possibly with the help of Watkins, in order to protect his true co-conspirators, Spiro Campbell, maybe even Cuddy's son, Jason. Given the time and effort we put into this case, hundreds, probably thousands of hours, the trips to Sacramento and Newport Beach, the number of witnesses we subpoenaed to the grand jury from those cities, as well as St. Louis, to flesh out their testimony, the records we spent countless hours analyzing, all the man hours of support from Metro and agents from around the country, this was pretty damn offensive. 
not to mention the attack on our integrity and particularly mine. But these are the type of tactics that defense attorneys get away with. And the above example is actually mild by comparison to many others I've seen. Yet, when it's all over, we're all supposed to shake hands, be collegial, attend bar association functions with our colleagues, and demonstrate civility at cocktail parties. After all, we're all attorneys. Now, apparently they're attorneys, and we're punching bags. And just like punching bags, we're supposed to take everything they dish out and never hit back. All of that aside, the misguided opening statement that told us, if we had any doubts, that we were in for a fight, and that only one side would be abiding by the Marcus of Queensbury rules. And on the next episode of Vegas Fed, the promised, ill-fated defense comes. Assistant U.S. Attorneys Jay Angelo and Tom O'Connell argue their case. The verdicts are in, and the prosecutors take a trip to San Francisco. This podcast was recorded on the campus of UNLV in the studios at 91.5 KUNV Radio with engineering and editing by Kevin Crawl. Content and music copyright 2020, Tom O'Connell.